Breaking news out of the region this hour is one of the strongest storms to ever make landfall in recorded histories hit the Philippines. Super Typhoon Haiyan moving over the Philippines this weekend. Typhoons are common in the eastern Pacific, but this one was quite literally off the scale. This is a machine. It's about as strong as they get anywhere on the planet. The Philippines is facing one of the worst natural disasters in its history. One of the strongest storms ever to tear across the ocean. This is probably one of the top storms ever seen on this planet. Typhoon Haiyan. Typhoon Haiyan. Typhoon Tonight, the most powerful storm on the planet this year has slammed directly into the Philippines. Typhoon Haiyan. It could be the strongest of any storm of its type at landfall ever. On November 8, 2013, Super Typhoon Haiyan made history as one of the most powerful storms to ever make landfall. It left behind a trail of devastation, death, and desperation across large parts of the central Philippines. There, the storm is known as Super Typhoon Yolanda. From Princeton University's Blue Lab, this is Carried by Water, a podcast where we explore stories that revolve around water as a force of nature, a resource, and a pillar of well-being. I'm Mario Soriano. I'm a hydrologist, and a huge chunk of what I do is study and predict the movement of water across the environment. I was teaching at the University of the Philippines in Diliman, Quezon City, when Super Typhoon Yolanda struck. Like the rest of the world, I was shocked by the images coming out of the hardest hit disaster zones. I'd grown up with typhoons, but I had never witnessed such destruction. Looking back 10 years later, Yolanda might have been a canary in the coal mine for the future of extreme events in a warming world. What lessons have we learned from this catastrophe? And how are we preparing for what's to come? This season of Carried by Water, we visit people impacted by Yolanda in various ways. We'll hear different voices from the typhoon survivors, as well as volunteers in the massive recovery effort that followed. We'll also hear from government officials, weather forecasters, disaster researchers, and other folks in academia. We'll examine the lessons learned about disaster preparedness and about the prolonged and oftentimes contentious process of recovery. And we'll explore how climate disaster leads coastal communities to reassess their relationships with the changing seas. Carried by Water, Episode 1 A Cluster of Clouds Over the Pacific Part 1 The Storm As someone who deals with prediction and modeling, 
I was curious about the predictions that went into the preparations for Yolanda. When a prediction concerns the near future, you'd call it a forecast. When it comes to forecasting weather in the Philippines, there's only one place to go. The Philippine Atmospheric, Geophysical, and Astronomical Services Administration, known simply as PAGASA. What do you remember about the time when Typhoon Yolanda was approaching? Every day, routinarily, you have to take a look on the weather chart maps as well as the numerical weather prediction models or NWP models. I was here monitoring a cluster of clouds over the Pacific during that time. I informed our friends from the media that there is a possible formation of a tropical cyclone over the Pacific Ocean, which might enter the Philippine area of responsibility. That's Robert Sawi. He's the chief of the weather forecasting section of Pag-asa. In the days leading up to Yolanda, Robert was on the job at the Pagasa central office in Quezon City, tracking and forecasting the storm's progress. With him then was June Galang, the current chief of the weather division. So during uh, Typhoon Yolanda, we are on duty uh, before it enters. Actually, Yolanda is already a typhoon before it enters the Philippine area of responsibility. As a rule here in Pagasa, during that time, we only issued tropical cyclone bulletin if it enters the Philippine area of responsibility. The Philippine Area of Responsibility, or PAR, is the region over which Pagasa traditionally monitors weather, mandated by the law that created the agency in 1972. Imagine a square draped over the Philippines, but extending further east towards the Pacific Ocean and north towards Taiwan, then slice off the corner approaching mainland China. Despite its official-sounding title, the PAR bears no territorial claims. It simply establishes the geographic limits of Pag-asa's work. Pag-asa gives local names and issues public advisories about tropical cyclones that enter the PAR. Super Typhoon Haiyan, however, forced Pag-asa to break this protocol. Here's June Galang again. We have a lead time in issuing the lowest warning, which is a tropical cyclone, wind signal number one, which is a 36 hours lead time. But upon discussing with Sir Robert, if we issued that warning when Yolanda already entered the Philippine area of responsibility, that lead time will not uh, suffice. So that's the first time we issuing warning even the cyclone is outside the Philippine area of responsibility because of its a very fast movement. That's the first time. The preparations for that uh, particular event was actually extreme because it was not yet uh, entered the Philippine area of responsibility. 
we already issued warnings to the people, communicated to the media as well as uh, the local government units. Pagasa issued severe weather bulletin 1 to warn the public about Haiyan on November 6 at 11 p.m. local time, about 30 hours before the storm made its first landfall. With the storm still outside the par, the first sentence in the advisory read, The typhoon east of Mindanao is about to enter the Philippine area of responsibility and will be named Yolanda. Yolanda was in all caps. That's routine practice. In hindsight, it feels kind of ominous. Severe Weather Bulletin 5, issued on November 7 at 11 p.m. local time, was the last advisory Pag-asa issued before Yolanda made landfall at 4.40 a.m. on November 8. Typhoon Yolanda is expected to make landfall tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. over Giwan Stern Summer. Estimated uh, rainfall amount is from 10 to 30 millimeters per hour. That is heavy to intense uh, within the 600 kilometer diameter of the typhoon. Residents in low-lying areas and mountainous areas under signal number 4, 3, 2, and 1 are alerted against possible floods and landslide. Likewise, those living in coastal areas under signal number 4, 3, and 2 are alerted against storm surges, which may reach up to 7 meters wave height. That's Marianito Makasa. He's a native of Giwan and the officer in charge of the Pagasa monitoring station there. He was at work during the height of Yolanda's wrath. I was here making the hourly observation and feeding to the local governments the exact location or the coordinates. We have a B-chip, the very high frequency radio. I feed the exact location, all the parameters that they might disseminate to the people in Giwan. I was here in the radar room. So now we're climbing the tower of the Pagasagi One station. It's very, very windy. The Giwan weather station is located on top of a hill and offers unmatched views of the surrounding town and ocean. When we visited in July of this year, a super typhoon affecting the northern part of the Philippines still produced strong and loud winds here. I can only imagine how terrifying Yolanda's winds would have felt. Even, I think, 12 midnight, November 8th, this building already swings like that, or, or, or plays like that, due to the strong winds, then continues until, I think, past 3 a.m. 
November 8, 2013. Yeah. The doors, the windows broken, that dome is broken. The, the previous dome can hold 300 kilometers per hour. That dome, the big one. Yeah, the, all the equipments were damaged. And almost, I almost died here. Yeah, I was hit my head by the sliding windows. Luckily, that glass was tempered, not an ordinary glass. Because if it was an ordinary glass, maybe my head was cut and I will die. The weather station's defining feature is a 150-foot-tall cerulean blue concrete tower topped with a white spherical dome, kind of like a gigantic golf ball. If you think that sounds like something off of some techno-science fiction novel, you wouldn't be too far off. The dome houses Doppler radar equipment that are linked to other constantly buzzing and beeping electronics in a concrete room below continuously recording vital data about the weather. This Doppler radar had just become operational in July 2013, and a couple of months later, Typhoon Yolanda sheared off the entire radar dome and destroyed the equipment. Repairs took years, and the restored Giwan station returned to full operations in 2017. Mario Peñaranda was also at work when Yolanda struck. He is the chief meteorological officer of the Pagasa station at the Tacloban airport. Oh, it's flashback. Four of us were rendering service during that time. And during November 7, the four of us were already at the station. Yolanda hit us around 5 a.m. November 8. We were staying at the rooftop of the station and visibility was really zero. Uh, around 10 o'clock in the morning, we saw now the devastation. There were several structures near the station and all were gone. One of his colleagues died on duty that day. Mr. Peñaranda said he finally managed to get the Tacloban station rebuilt in 2020, almost eight years after Yolanda's destruction. Pagasa's weather stations collect critical observations for the weather forecasters at the central office in Quezon City. Their observations are key to the warnings that go out to the public. For field station, our role really is acting like we are the eye of the forecaster. We have this instrument, the microbarograph, that could tell us that it is moving closer to us. The microbarograph, under normal condition, it goes like this from 8 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the morning, then past 11 it will go down. So it's just a wave wave-like form. But during Yolanda, it was almost a vertical line. It was moving too fast. 
the speed was 40 kilometers per hour. The forecaster said that because Yolanda was so strong and moving too fast, there was actually very little uncertainty in its track. The track of Yolanda, almost all weather station, all weather offices worldwide, points to the same direction. But in some cases, if it's not that strong, you have different tracks. Here's June Galang from the central office. We did very well in forecasting the track of Super Typhoon Yolanda because uh, we can consider that a well-behaved uh, cyclone. So in terms of track, we did very well. A well-behaved cyclone. A storm that was easy to predict. Clearly, though, something went wrong. If the experts knew what was going to happen, why did the disaster become as big as it did? Part 2. Communication Breakdown Inez Ponce de Leon wanted to understand what happened from the point of view of the survivors. I spoke to her at a restaurant in Quezon City. I'm Inez Ponce de Leon. I'm an associate professor at the Department of Communication of the Ateneo de Manila University, where I specialize in science and risk communication. After Yolanda, several commentators claimed that Pagasa's warnings were not understood by the public because they were not translated into the local languages. The Philippines has over a hundred languages across its 7,000-plus islands. Inez wanted to probe this prevailing narrative. From 2015 to 2016, she retraced Haiyan's track and spoke to survivors in different communities. I really wanted to understand how people understood the warnings and how they understand the weather and, and storms. And I wanted to track Haiyan from Giwan to Palo to Camotes to Rojas to Coron. So it's from the entrance to the exit because I didn't want to think of the Philippines as one monolith. I could see that language would be different. Maybe meanings would be different. Giwan, Palo, Camotes Island, Rojas, Coron. Five towns with contrasting experiences of the storm. So we had these five towns and we looked at a coastal versus an inland village or barangay in Filipino terms. So we picked a coastal barangay because we assumed that there would be a different meaning attached to a typhoon if people lived closer to the sea versus those who lived inland in a more cosmopolitan urbanized area. One inland and one coastal barangay or village in each of the five towns. That's ten communities along Haiyan's path of destruction. Inez spoke to local leaders and community members to discuss what they experienced, how they understood the warnings, and why they made the decisions they made. 
here's what she found. For the inland barangays, those that lived in the more urbanized areas, many of them wanted visual language. Now, it's not so much visual as in, I want to see a photograph of a truck flying to know that a truck is going to fly. It's more when the warnings came in, they couldn't translate what 250 kilometers per hour meant. That was not in their lexicon. But they had to be told, the wind will be strong enough to lift a truck. The wind will be strong enough to uproot the trees in front of your house. So they wanted the visual language that was very close to their context. For many of the coastal barangays, many of them already had their own understanding of the weather. Strangely, some of them didn't even evacuate, even when it was hot and dry, even if they knew that a hot and dry spell is a precursor to a really strong typhoon because they weren't told to leave. So that was a very strange disconnect between the indigenous knowledge and modern warnings. She uses air quotes as she says the word modern. As with any conscientious researcher, Inez emphasizes that not all places were the same. In some villages, People evacuated even without being warned. Other people left their homes because all their neighbors were talking about leaving and they didn't want to be the only ones left in the village. Several factors affected every individual person's understanding and actions. But Inez offers the following general observations. So how do they receive the warnings? In many different ways, but most of it was really not about, oh, I now understand the weather. It's more of, one, the, the warning is telling me that in 18 hours I should feel wind, but it's dry. Eh, I'm staying. Number two, the warning says I'm going to feel the wind in 18 hours. Let's just wait until 18 hours and see if the wind really comes. Third, I've weathered storms before. I'm fine. I'll be okay. Mario Peñaranda of the Tacloban Weather Station echoes the observation that people did not fully appreciate the severity of the impending storm. Several press briefings were held. Even I made two press briefings at the airport. The problem was, okay, we've been stating that this is a very strong typhoon, but you know what? It's hard for people to understand. They'll just be saying to you that, oh, we've been here for 20 years, but nothing happened to us. And what contributes to that assumption that they will not be affected by Yolanda is that no manifestation, no heavy rainfall, no strong winds, whereas other cyclones, three days before it makes land, we already felt. But during Yolanda, you cannot really tell the people that this typhoon is very strong because no precursory signs as if it's just normal back in Giwan Marianito Makasa said his friends just laughed at his warnings when I communicated or texted some of my friends or when I see say in person ah there is a typhoon they're only laughing. They're only laughing because 
we are used of the typhoon. I said, no, this is different from the previous typhoons. It's different. Other survivors we spoke to described scenes of singing and drinking under a moonlit night right before the typhoon struck. They described Yolanda as being treacherous and mapagkunwari or pretentious. People couldn't fully imagine how bad the disaster could be. For many Filipinos, Yolanda fundamentally altered their understanding of typhoons. This evolving knowledge is important as we begin to grapple more and more with the impacts of climate change. Part 3. The Climate Change Question Until recently, this statement, one can't attribute a single event to climate change, was taken to be a truism. Now, extreme event attribution is one of the fastest growing fields of climate science. In simplified terms, climate scientists can now take a particular event, say a storm, and analyze how it unfolded in the present with the current levels of CO2 in the atmosphere and other environmental conditions like warmer oceans. They then compare that to what's called a counterfactual. That is, they take that storm and simulate how it would have unfolded in a pre-industrial climate with lower CO2 levels and cooler oceans, for example. The comparison gives an idea about the effect of human-induced climate warming. Following a similar framework, researchers from Japan published a study in 2015 that stated, quote, in 15 of 16 ensemble experiments, the intensity of the simulated worst-case storm in the actual conditions was stronger than that in a hypothetical natural condition without historical anthropogenic forcing during the past 150 years. End quote. Okay, that was a lot. So let me simplify. These researchers found that Haiyan would not have been as strong in a world without climate change. I should point out that a few other studies using slightly different methods and datasets reached different conclusions. Climate change attribution for extreme temperature events like heat waves has been more consistent. Jane Delfino recently returned to the Philippines after finishing her PhD in the United Kingdom. She studies the possible impacts of climate change on extreme weather events. I am currently a faculty member at the Institute of Environmental Science and Meteorology here at the University of the Philippines, Diliman. I'm also a climate scientist by educational background, work experience, and training. Jane's work shows that climate change 
would lead to more intense tropical cyclones, with increasing wind speeds and likely increasing rainfall as well. There's still uncertainty in terms of the total number of cyclones, but it is clear that the strongest storms will be increasing. In terms of the frequency, the projections are showing either a constant number or a decrease, and some are actually showing an increase. So there's still some sort of uncertainty as to the number of tropical cyclones into the future. But I think the more important message here is that even though the numbers may be stable or not increasing into the future, the number of the most intense ones, for example, Haiyan-like category storms, will be increasing. And these are the storms that are actually causing a lot of damages. Jane also highlighted the increasing challenge of storms that strengthen rapidly. More recently, we've also seen storms actually rapidly intensifying right before landfall. These are dangerous in terms of people can still get surprised that, oh, yesterday it was just like this much in terms of strength, but now it's full on typhoon. So the time for preparation is very critical with the rapidly intensifying storms. There has been several cases in the more recent years after Haiyan, wherein we experience storms that actually rapidly intensified over a span of 24 hours. Just as I'm recording this, Hurricane Otis, quote, explosively intensified right before making landfall in Acapulco, Mexico. Weather forecasters called this a nightmare scenario and said that none of their models predicted that Otis would strengthen from a run-of-the-mill tropical storm to a Category 5 hurricane within 24 hours. Filipino listeners may be familiar with Acapulco from the galleon trade, which connected Manila and Acapulco from 1565 to 1815 under the Spanish colonial rule. A recent study published in Nature Communications concluded that across the globe's offshore regions, the number of tropical cyclones that rapidly intensified tripled from 1980 to 2020. The science of rapid intensification is still in its infancy, so it might take a while before scientists are able to fully understand the process and predict if a storm would rapidly intensify. Part 4 Evolving Protocols we asked Jane if she's seen any improvements in the 10 years since Yolanda. Hmm. So, PAGASA is doing a project on impact-based forecasting. So, essentially what PAGASA is saying is that impact-based forecasting will shift the focus in communicating what the weather will be like. For example, a tropical cyclone is coming in, a 
regular weather forecasting communication strategy would say uh, we are expecting that the peak intensity would reach around 250 kilometers per hour. But with impact-based forecasting, you would focus the content of your information into what that would mean in terms of when should we evacuate, which places would be greatly affected or directly affected, what kind of preparations should they be doing with that number. It shifts the types of information that you provide to the public. A comparison of the Pag-asa bulletins for Super Typhoon Haiyam and Super Typhoon Doksuri illustrates this point. Doksuri, locally named Super Typhoon Egai, was the storm affecting the northern Philippines during our visit to Giwan. If you go back to Pagasa's Tropical Cyclone Bulletin for Yolanda, you'll see that it had three main sections. The first section listed key information about the storm, including the location of its center, its current strength in terms of wind speeds, and forecasts of the typhoon's track. The second section was a table of the areas where a public storm warning signal was in effect. Back then, Pagasa's system ranged from signal number 1 to signal number 4. The areas listed were either entire provinces or large parts of provinces. The third and final section of the bulletin consisted of short sentences narrating additional information about the storm and its possible impacts. The bulletin for Egai is much longer and more extensive. Information on both the track and future intensity of the storm is now provided in its own table, listing forecasts in a 12-hourly interval all the way up to 96 hours. Public storm warning signals have been replaced by tropical cyclone wind signals, which now range from signal number 1 to 5. Notably, the table now includes town names, making the information more localized. There's a new section on hazards affecting land areas, and another one on hazards affecting coastal waters. Additional bullet points on the forecast now have their own section titled Track and Intensity Outlook. June Galang from the Pagasa Central Office. Many products and services actually triggered when Typhoon Haiyan or Yolanda hit the Philippines. Many improvements, many products and services were added. The very notion of a super typhoon was institutionalized after Haiyan. Before, we have the super typhoon categories. Before, even though the intensity of a tropical cyclone is the super typhoon, we only categorize it as typhoon. So some of the residents uh, just being reluctant because they say it's only typhoon. So as a way to maybe warn for the added preparation, we adopt the inclusion of super typhoon category after the occurrence of Yolanda. 
Pagasa categorizes storms as tropical depression, tropical storm, severe tropical storm, typhoon, and now super typhoon. The categories tell you about the maximum intensity of the storm, while the wind signal tells you about its relative strength based on location. For example, during Yolanda's peak, the areas along its track were under signal number 4, the highest level back in 2013. But because of how large the storm was, much of the country had warning signals in effect. Metro Manila was under signal number 2. Pagasa has also expanded its monitoring activities beyond the Philippine area of responsibility. We increased the domain of the monitoring because before it's only within Philippine area of responsibility. We made an imaginary domain. We call it the Tropical Cyclone Advisory Domain, which is much bigger than the Philippine area of responsibility. And aside from that, because uh, LGU are complaining about the lead time, so we increase again the domain, which is much bigger than the Tropical Cyclone Advisory Domain, and we call it the Tropical Cyclone Information Domain, which reaches farther than Hawaii. So, if there is a tropical cyclone, we already issued information to the general public for the preparation for the lead time because they are complaining. Pagasa's response to the public clamor for more information and greater lead times for the warnings can be viewed as a lesson learned from Yolanda. The agency stresses the continuing need for increased public awareness. Here's Robert Sawi. Awareness in the sense that people must have at least technical know-how on what a weather is and likewise the impacts of this weather to the community. People must be aware or if not, uh, we have to educate again and again and again. Jane Delfino adds that there's a lot more work to be done. There's still a lot of things that we don't understand. And the Philippines being the living laboratory of tropical cyclones and other weather and extreme events, we need more people looking into the science behind this and how we can actually communicate the science better so that people will be more prepared. The Living Laboratory of Tropical Cyclones and Other Weather and Extreme Events. Sounds like an ideal place to do some science. Kind of a scary place to call home, though. Still, as Inez Ponce de Leon's work shows, more information doesn't always translate to action. She says science-based warnings have to also work with people's knowledge and realities. Listen to the communities. Okay. I, I think this is said a lot, but 
really listening to communities means sitting down with them, listening to what they know, listening to their habits. And if you want to bring in science, that's fine and great. But they have to work together with what the community has rather than impose on who the community is. We've talked about how Super Typhoon Yolanda, the storm itself, and warnings about its intensity played out. That howling spiral of wind and rain barreling through the sky was one part of the disaster. The other, devastating part, was a massive wall of water from the sea. those living in coastal areas under signal number four, three, and two are alerted against storm surges, which may reach up to seven meters wave height. In the next episode of Carried by Water, we'll take a deep dive into the deadly storm surge triggered by Yolanda. Uh, we were even blamed because we should have called it a tsunami. But we could not do that because a storm surge is different from a tsunami. Carried by Water is a production of Blue Lab at Princeton University. It was created by me, Mario Soriano. This episode was written by me, with production support from Patrick Hauhoko and Braden Carroll. Our sound engineer is Braden Carroll. Alison Carruth is the director of Blue Lab, and Baron Bixler is creative director. Visit our website, bluelab.princeton.edu, for more information and photographs for this episode. See you next time. <laughs>